Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Story Smack. Hello, my name is A. Kovacs, audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And my name is Scott Segler, best-selling novelist. And for once, this podcast isn't all about me. It's very sad. Oh, you poor I thing. I know, I know, right? This episode is about books, in particular author and storyteller Pierce Brown. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Red Rising trilogy. And I'm a big fan of this series. And I had the honor of being the first mm. cover blurb for Red Rising way back in 2014. And uh, since then, I've become friends with Pierce. And we have all watched his star rise in the literary world. He just put out book four in that series called Iron Gold, which is the beginning of a new trilogy in the Red Rising series. And Mysterious Galaxy Books in San Diego asked you to help kick off his new mm-hmm. book tour, mm-hmm. which we recorded and we're about to play for you guys. Uh, we thought this would be a pretty nice episode of Story Smack. I was honored to do this, and it was a ton of fun. So far in this Story Smack podcast, we're in episode 33 already. We mostly focused on movies, but this episode is a great uh, behind-the-scenes look at the storyteller's mind. Red Rising, the first trilogy, was a huge success, has entertained thousands of people. So this is a great bit of content to see a little bit of how the sausage is made, if you will, in front of a live audience. Oh, yeah. And the bookstore was packed. I think maybe made 200, 250 people Yeah, it was there. huge, yeah. Um, the event was at 7 p.m. And the talk took about 45 minutes. And then he signed for two, about three hours. Three hours. I think it was, so many it people was, there. I think everybody had a great time, though. Uh, in this interview, Pierce talks about sharing some things on his social media. So if you're interested in social media, you will follow him on Twitter. He is at Pierce, P-I-E-R-C-E underscore Brown, B-R-O-W-N. He's marginally active on Twitter. He's not a big fan of Twitter, but his real reach is on Instagram because he's all pretty and stuff. And uh, he also shows off his cute little dog all of the time. You can find him on Instagram at one word at Pierce Brown official. And in case we you hadn't heard of Pierce, we wanted to get that quick info out there before we roll the interview because he and Scott kind of jump right mm-hmm. into it. So listen in. You can hear all about his struggle to get published in the first place and how he now deals with the pressure of following up on a number one New York Times bestselling trilogy. So here's the interview recorded live at Mysterious Galaxy Books in San Diego who have signed copies for sale if you go to mistgalaxy.com. That's M-Y-S-T-G-A-L-A-X-Y dot com. Enjoy. <laughs> uh, first off, thank you everyone uh, so much for coming. Uh, the Serious Galaxy has had such a place in my heart because my first uh, ever signing event was at the Serious Galaxy in 2014 for Red Rising. I recognize some of you were there. There's about 16 of you. <laughs> if you were here for that, raise your hand. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Uh, that's, I think that's all 16. <laughs> but it's been such uh, an amazing thing seeing the Red Rising fan base grow, mostly because of how positive a fan base it is, mostly how uh, warm and how it feels like a family. And it's really fun to be able to dive back into this series. 
for the express purpose of continuing to give my family little treats. So uh, I'm so glad you guys could be here. It was the fourth book I've done in the series Galaxy with one of my best friends, Scott Stigler, uh, who also is fantastic. So a round of applause for Scott before he messes up. And let's boogie. All right, let's boogie. Clearly, we don't need to introduce Pierce Brown. Is there anybody here who's not familiar with Pierce Brown at this point? Who? Yeah. <laughs> the dude with the hair. Is he Shame her. Know. Someone, get it out. <laughs> Pierce, uh, I went out on Twitter and the internets. I know the internets very well. Yes. And I. What did you discover? Garnered a few questions from people on the internets. That sounds safe. Your publisher was delighted to send a few sample questions, which I'll get to eventually. <laughs> but these are these actually aren't bad. These are very good questions from fans of yours. Okay. Uh, let's jump right into it. From Carrie O'Brien on Twitter. Ask Pierce about the experience of having a different editor for this book, and if the process for the book changed at all from having a female perspective. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so my initial editor was Mike Brath for the first three books, and Mike is a terrific collaborator, and the fact that he kind of looks like Gimli really helps Mike Brath. <laughs> Uh, and I literally gave him, you know, Severo's Tickler is what is boot knives. I gave Mike, uh, I, I made a, got contacted a guy who makes knives uh, down in Texas, and he made this fantastic knife that's about this long for Mike. Um, I'll put an image up on my social media so you can look at it, and, you know, I almost kept it. Um, <laughs> but that bond I had with Mike was so much further beyond someone who's just my editor. You know, he's my friend as well. And fortunately, when I was passed off to Mike because he moved on uh, to Greener Pastures, um, he moved on to uh, Skybound Books, and I inherited Trisha Narwani. Now, the fortunate thing is, Trisha was my second reader when doing the Red Rising series. So it's always had the female perspective in it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, most of the first readers at Del Rey are female who read the books. Mike gave it to, I think his top two readers were both female. So they've always had that perspective, so it's not really changed it to that degree. But with Mike, there was a unique collaboration because he could... Check, uh, fact check me way better than anyone else could. I mean, except for some people probably on Reddit. Um, <laughs> you know who you are. And it was amazing having Mike as that resource. So sometimes it required more in this book, a greater degree of responsibility to make sure that not only was I getting the tone right, but I was getting my facts right. And the problem is I don't take notes. So me trying to remember all those names is a little tricky. Um, so Tricia, you know, helped me go through that stuff, mm -hmm. and uh, she acclimated very quickly. Mm -hmm. Here's another one. Here's my favorite question, just the from the geek perspective, from Ryan Stone on Twitter. Is there a bigger sibling to the star shell armor that we may see in a future story? Basically, he's asking, are there going to be Gundam size or even mech size suits? And I thought, well. Daryl basically was a mech pilot in the first pages of the book when he's yeah. piloting the Helldiver. Is that something that's in this one, or are we going to see? There's always a bigger fish, Scott. <laughs> um, yeah, there's two classes of armor which are bigger. The Republic has this new class of military unit called the Jägendrocker, which means dragon hunter. So they are purposefully meant to hunt golds on the battlefield, and golds are the most heavily armored, so they have to be heavily armored as well. They're usually piloted by reds mm. or blues, with uh, people with quick dexterity. And you'll see Jägendrockers within the new series, and you'll probably also see Titans. I'm not going to say what Titans ah. are, because they'll be very fun to unleash. All right, all yeah. right. And that was a very pressing question. Here's one, difficult one for you. What is your favorite cast? 
Oh, um. Are you a, are I was you like, gold? Uh, are you a red? I'm a, I'm a big fan of the leg cast. <laughs> Do we have any feet casts up here in a row? Do you have a cast on? No, no. no. <laughs> See, that would have been great. I could have flirted with you and said it was great. Yeah. Um, I would say there's several different things are playing. I mean, my, my gut goes with reds, but golds are just so damn fun to write because they're just insidious. They're all like, you know, the person you don't want in your high school class. Um, so I think golds are the most fun to write, but I think that the reds are still near and dear to my heart. However, it's been really fun fleshing out uh, the coppers a bit through the characters mm. in Iron Gold. Okay. And then also the blues. So oh, you... damn it. I missed the joke. I should have said pinks. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have a, as a writer, do you have a particular favorite one that when you get into it, is it the gold? Because like, having read it, it seems like when you are writing the obsidians, that's the most fun. Obsidians can be the most fun, mostly because there are, you always notice them in a room. And so think about a character that you're introducing to a scene. Um, it's an extremely pleasant thing as a writer when a character walks in and everyone has to respond to them. And so that person, if an obsidian, seven, six obsidian walked in, he would challenge everyone's idea of their own masculinity or their own uh, ability to handle themselves. And it's fun getting to see characters you know, see, so like, shit, that's a bigger fish. Yeah, you know? even for the golds, that's still... Yeah, but also, you know, I was, I'm, I'm a great fan of uh, the Norse epics, uh, Red Beowulf as a kid, and I'm also a fan of much of Mongolian history, and I crossbred those two in my mind to make the obsidians, and that is fun to sometimes drop some nerdy knowledge, yeah. either from hardcore history or something else, um, in the obsidian cast, so I really like writing them. Plus, Ragnar was just fun, and he jumped off the page, and he was a big surprise to me as a writer. Took you off guard? Was he was he supposed to die early? I've had characters that I plan on writing them, they're going to die early, then they just no, he come was, alive. He was always meant to die when he did, um, which is unfortunate because he's so fun to write. Mm -hmm. But I think I was surprised how much I liked him. And I put, I put the Ragnar speaking in bold text just to mess with my editor, just to be like, you know, this guy's got brass balls, Mike. <laughs> I wrote that in the email, and then Mike's like, we're keeping it. I'm like, really? You know? Uh, same thing with Mike. I put in by Felicity, and Mike's like, let's just go for it. Bye, Felicia. Uh, so Mike sometimes pushes me a little further to the edge, so that's why we kept Ragnar in bold font, and he's the only character who will ever speak in bold font because he's Ragnar, the shield of Tinos. Yeah. So as a writer, I'm sure... Now you've got three books out. This is your fourth book out. Mm. So you've now covered, how many years has this been? Six? Five in or six? my life? In, uh, of the writing life. Uh, since Red Rising came out. Well, since Red Rising came out, it came out in 2014. So 2014. just four years. Just four years. Okay. I sold it to Random House two years before that. So people tend to imprint the current political state on your books based on what the current political state is. And I found that I've been writing for a while and mm -hmm. every time a president changes and somebody new comes along like, oh, is this about Obama? I'm like, this was... 10 years before Obama was even a senator. Um, so we had Steve Chappell, Sean, sorry, Sean Chappell from Facebook, asked, do you feel that the central ideas and themes of this book have a more significant meaning now due to our current political climate? I would say that is a question you could ask at any point in history to any author. I think that what I try to write for um, are the greater arcs that I see happening and recurring, I guess maybe the circularity that happens in history. And I think it's incumbent upon a writer to not preach, to instead ask questions. Because I see a lot of writing and it feels as though it's preaching at me and telling me that the author has all the answers. And then you meet that author and you're like, not this guy. No. <laughs> and so 
I never want to tell the readers what to think because you know my life experience is so different from each one of yours. So I feel like that would be a bit arrogant. But I do think that Red Rising and Golden Sun and Morning Star and Iron Gold all reach for the uh, for or reach to reflect something about our time. You know, I think that it is incumbent upon a writer to write about their time or ask questions about their time. But I don't mean for anything to be or to contribute to the like to, to demagoguery that exists right now. You know, I think if you attack a politician in a science fiction book, you know, personally, then you're just simplifying your work and you're not speaking to the ideals or, or to the traits you see in human beings. Instead, you're just adding on to the pile. And I don't want to do that. What I'd rather do is create a fictional world that resembles ours through a dark glass and then ask questions based off that and see if we can come up with some answers together. Here's when I saw a couple of people with Red Rising comic books uh, in here to be signed. Holovar on Twitter asks, maybe asking about the Son of Aries comic six book series and if we can expect more or was it just a one-off? Also, how much involvement did you have in the comic and did you supervise or just let Dynamite, the publisher's Dynamite, take the reins? So comics is an extremely collaborative form, but I'd already gone through the filmmaking gauntlet, so I was pleasantly surprised by how easy the... Um, coordination, easy, the collaboration was with the guys at Dynamite and they had fantastic uh, artists, Eli Powell mm -hmm. and Rick Hoskins did a great job on the uh, the story, on the uh, the writing, but I did the entire story, I had outlined it beat for beat but that takes a lot of time and that takes away from Dark Age and it takes away from the next book and so I'd rather concentrate on the novels that said, if Dynamite was able to do a little more of the heavy lifting I might do some more uh, Sons of Ares um, you would be more of a supervisory role? Yeah, yeah. and what I want to do is build out the mythology. Mm -hmm. And if you can build out the mythology and make it all coherent as coming from me, then I feel like that builds out the world, fleshes out the world. I mean, my favorite part about going on tour is being able to realize and see new texture of the Red Rising world that I didn't see before simply by seeing your perception of it. And when you see someone else's perception of the thing that you've held dear for six years or seven years, it's a very strange thing because you get to see a new dimension on it. And it's fun because I get to be shown all these different elements that I didn't see. And that's what happens when you collaborate with the comics. I got to see the elements to it I didn't think out or that I didn't evolve completely. And it helped make the world overall better. And fortunately, I was doing that when I was doing Iron Gold. So I was able to link in character arcs and bring characters from Sons of Ares into Iron Gold. And then vice versa and come up with backstories and link them all together. That makes me look really clever, but I just figured it out right then. <laughs> In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, 
a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Here's one from uh, Lindsay Baker, and some of you might not know this, that Obviously, you know, Red Rising was Pierce's first book, but it wasn't your first, it was your first published book. Yeah, yeah. You were in the trenches slugging away like every successful author has ever done and created a few that didn't, didn't make the cut. More than a few. More than More a few. More than a few. So her question is about persistence. Uh, knowing that you had several that you didn't get published, Lindsay wants to know your thoughts on persistence. When you were starting out getting turned down, did you change your writing approach or did you shop to more publishers or was it a combination of both? I wrote six books before I wrote Red Rising. Um, all of them were rejected by agents, and they never even got to publishers. I think I was rejected, all told, by 120 agents. And I took that to mean that I had... And, but each of, the, okay, each of these stories, I still felt reticent to share. I didn't still feel like it was what I was trying to say. And that's mostly because I was trying to write for the marketplace, and I was trying to be clever. And the problem is, you're writing what agents are all soliciting now, but that means that the wave is already dying down. You know, it's like the everyone started writing about supernatural things when Twilight and that other series, uh, Mortal Instruments, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, when they were coming uh, already in their heyday, and then the agents got all these manuscripts and then shopped them around, and none other series that were fantasy like that did very well because it was already a tired genre. So I found that the only way I could succeed was by writing something that I really, really, really wanted to read. You know, something that. Uh, kind of spawned from the films I watched, from the books I books I uh, watched when I was I read when I was younger, and kind of boiling down to the essential elements and seeing how I can make it mine. And Red Rising was the last book I wrote, and I actually backed off of writing for a year because no agent still wanted it. And I went and worked a minimum wage job. I shuffled back and forth between a, diff a couple different careers, and I'd almost given up on writing because I thought that that was my shot into the dark. You know, mm -hmm. that was my last thing I could write. Because if, if that doesn't do it, I don't know what does. Because that was that was exactly my taste. The other books were compromises. This one was exactly my taste. And if it wasn't right, then maybe I'm not meant to be a writer. Right. And that was hard. But that was after seven books. And then randomly, I got a call from a uh, a woman in New York who had just left the desk of an agent that I'd request or submitted to six different times. So the first time, she just sent me a form rejection letter. Second time, she said she'd like to see five pages. And then she said, God, God, no more. <laughs> and then the third time, she wanted 50 pages. And she said, oh, God, no more. <laughs> then the last, the next time, she wanted the whole manuscript. of These are all different books. And she said, ah, well, not for me. But if you have more. And so I was, like, very excited. And I sent her another one, and she rejected it. So I was just, you know, kind of crestfallen because it's a center red rising. She rejected it. Then a year later, I get a call from this uh, Hannah Bowman, and I'd never heard of Hannah before, but she was actually the assistant on the desk of the agent that I'd you know, uh, asked to represent me six different times. 
and she said I want she wanted me to be her first client and so she took and she was 24 at the time and I was 23 at the time and so I took a risk by signing with her because I'm like hell this woman's got time on her hands um, <laughs> so she helped she helped me prep Red Rising and then we found Del Rey as a home but I, that all happens for from you know the persistence of knowing what it's you want what, what you want to do the, mm-hmm. the thing that I counsel you to do is not compromise in terms of trying to write for the market, not compromise in terms of writing something you don't want to read because all you have really as an author or as a creator of any sort is your taste. Not so much your execution, your taste. And if you write something that's to your taste and your execution is a little off, then you'll fix the execution. You'll be able to see it a year out or so because you get perfect vision when you're a year away from a book. But if you write something to your taste, you you have to be proud of that and that's your only way to really succeed, I think. And so... um, I think the persistence is key, but also honesty with oneself. Mm. So you have that big, that all that hard work mm-hmm. and all that rejection goes into getting Red Rising there. You're almost ready to give up. It comes out. Obviously, it's a huge hit. You are number one New York Times bestseller now. It is a massive success this series. Go on. Finish that story. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Also, you want to rub my shoulders? Yes. 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 Sit there and write good books and do fun things. And, and drink lots of coffee. <laughs> but you get this out and it's done and it finishes up with a bang and people love it. And now you've got to follow it up. So this is the question from me. How much pressure did you feel for this new trilogy? And did that pressure impact your creative process? Has it been a the albatross around your neck, or are you more like whatever? Don't screw. It. How do you? So do you as respond? excruciatingly like tense as you think it might be, like the pressure, it's worse because I'm OCD. So imagine <laughs> I've got my room just the way I like it, right? And then I'm like, let's turn everything around and still make it a room I want to live in. That's what Iron Gold feels like. And I wondered at first if it was a kind of a fool's errand to try to improve on the Red Rising series, because I very much am proud of that series and like how it ended up. And the only answer to that is, did I have more to say? And I did, because I wanted to talk about the thing that is never talked about in sci- or rarely talked about in sci-fi and fantasy. It's what happens after the Death Star blows up the second time, you know? I didn't really feel like making a third Death Star, but, you know, that's a creative choice. <laughs> that I totally don't have an opinion on. (laughs) But it was important to me to continue the story, mostly because Red Rising has never been a binary book. It's never about good and evil, Uh, rarely with the characters, and rarely can an ending be different thematically than the book is. So the book's theme is about the gray between characters, the gray between good choices and bad choices and, you know, tyranny and then freedom. And so I wanted to explore that further and dive into a series that would exemplify that theme and to really embrace, not just on a thematic level, but on a narrative level, not a binary struggle between the rising and uh, the society, but a, through a lot of factions, through factions that represented different parts of the, of the human psyche as I see it. And so there was a lot of pressure because I didn't want to mess up something I thought completed so well, mm-hmm. but there was so much excitement because I got to talk about things that I didn't get to talk about in the other books. Okay. And I got to go into granular detail and really get into the cracks in the sidewalk that I wasn't able to explore in the last book. So was this a no-brainer that you were going to jump right into the next, or continue Red Rising, or you spent all this time with the series and these characters and you finish it up? Was there a big urge to go write something else? No, it was a no-brainer. As yeah. soon as I wrote, uh, was writing Morningstar, I knew that I wanted to write more. And mm-hmm. you saw it probably by how many people I let live. <laughs> <laughs> I showed great restraint. You should be proud of me. <laughs> 
So here's one from your publisher. So we're ten, this book takes place 10 years after the events of Morningstar. Things have not gone exactly as Darrow or many of the other characters had hoped. In Iron Gold, were there ways in which you tried to provide more perspective on the failures of Red Rising, of The Rising, excuse yeah. me, not the book? Well, this goes into the, I mean, it attaches itself to the other question because when I'm talking about getting into the cracks on the sidewalk, you know, what I wanted to do with the different POVs is go places Darrow couldn't go. And a lot of that is looking at Darrow himself because Iron Gold is a lot about myth. It's about the personal myth of a human being and what happens when a society gets a hold of him or when people get a hold of him and then lift him up and then perfect him and then uh, demonize him. And so what I want to do is have three characters create a three-dimensional view, and that worked out nicely, uh, three-dimensional view of Darrow and to see someone who had been on his side but was disillusioned by the rising or the cost of the rebellion. I wanted to see someone who was supposedly someone he was fighting for but then got trodden underfoot of you know, the giants who are waging war. And then I wanted to see the perspective of someone that he outwardly wronged, but kept alive for a moral reason, even though it wasn't a good strategic one. And so by getting all those perspectives, it was easier to dive into the questions, not just about the rising, but about Darrow himself, who is very much the rising. But Darrow is all velocity. You know, Helldiver always is. Mm -hmm. And so he's learned to use that to his advantage. But the whole reason he was able to be so effective is because he thought linearly, thought straight ahead. And many of the people he was dealing with did not understand such a force of nature. He's basically a comet, right? And so that impact of the comet, what happens when you know devastated cities are left in his wake? What happens when he breaks the own rules of his republic? What happens when he does certain things? They have a larger projection than just one man doing it. And I think that's really fun to explore. Mm -hmm. um, and fun to see how similar Darrow and the Rising are, because both on the surface seem good, but when you peel back the uh, myth, there's war crimes going on. And it's fun to explore that and see whether or not the ends justify the means, and what that means for your own morality, whether or not you agree with them or disagree. And hopefully you can never tell which one I do, uh, if I agree or disagree, because I think that it's really important for you guys to make your own decisions, especially at the end of this series, because there'll be a lot of questions like that, whether or not someone did something terrible, but if they save a million people or a million and one people, is it okay if they kill 50,000? And that's a unpleasant thing to explore, but also just fun. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, do, uh, we'll do one more, and then we'll go get some questions from the audience. But, you know, Daryl is, is a blunt instrument, right? Mm -hmm. he, is, he is the reaper. He is especially gifted at killing and destruction. But with a whole lot of emotions. Yes, yeah. a lot of feels. Yeah, a he's, lot of he's, feels. Like, he's like that guy, but like from Death Cab for Cutie. He's got a little bit of, he's got a little bit of eye black. Yeah. He's an emo slaughterer. Oh, yeah. Will. There's some like striking resemblance between Darrow and some of the lyrics for Death Cab for Cutie. He's, he's still wondering about that glove box. Uh, Anyone? No? Okay. So I've just, I've just started this, and right out of the gate, I won't do any spoilers, and uh. no spoilers in your answer, he's still very good at what he does. He's the Wolverine of sci-fi. He's, yeah. uh, he's very good at what he does. In this book, do we see him take up the reins of government more, or is he still specializing in... And Darrow Smash is he just he's the, he is the weapon that he is the causative agent of change or do we see a softer side of him? Uh, you'll see both hopefully if I've done it well. I think that what's important is seeing the temptation of both to Darrow, and a lot of times his most people who are his greatest enemies are the ones who play games that he's not able to. Plenty the Jackal, two people that had him all tied up mm -hmm. simply because they move in three directions and Darrow moves in one direction. You know. And so you'll get to see T Darrow 
assume the responsibility of having a family, assume the responsibility of having this myth, and then hopefully trying not to succumb to it. And unfortunately, expediency is usually Darrow's uh, favorite method of getting anything done. Mm -hmm. So you'll see a lot of expediency. Okay, one more for me, one more, and then we'll jump to the yeah. audience. So Darrow is 33 at the opening of this book, is that yes. correct? 33? Yes. And you have added a few years to your life since writing the original draft of Red Riding. Sadly. Sadly. <laughs> Try to press pause. <laughs> How much of your current life experience and your current age goes into Darrow's experience in this book? Well, Scott, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> as I said, I wanted to explore the, the, the gray area between are uh, the gray area in the, the actions of the rising or of the republic. And it would have been harder to do that when I was 24, when I was 22. See, I, I wrote Red Rising because I was at a point in my life where I was kind of adrift and directionless, and I was trying to find my own identity and carve my own place because I was disillusioned with the world because I thought I was too big. Because, you, you know, you go in college, and you're in college, and they teach you all these things, and they act like you're going to be in the room making decisions about political political issues, and that you're going to be making policy, but then you're just you know shuttling <coughs> papers back and forth. They're making Xerox copies, and you start feeling swallowed up by the world. At least I did when I left college, and I felt very small and wondered if I had a place in the world. So I wrote Daryl because he was a reflection of what I wanted to be. I wanted to have a purpose. I wanted to have agency to affect that purpose, and. You know, I was able, by writing Red Rising, kind of carve my own path through life. But now, I'm 29, Darrow's 33, and it's an inverse. So Darrow's a little bit older than me, and as I've grown older, you know, I, I, as, as a youngster, when I was young, as a youngster, uh, <laughs> as a strapping young man, um, as, when I was young, I, I kind of adhered and believed in the idea that the arc of history bends toward justice. And I've been a little bit disillusioned of late for many reasons. Um, by seeing that may not necessarily be true. And, of course, that's happened through many decades. You know, ours is hardly the unique time because it happens in cycles. You know, I, I guarantee you, if you ask anyone who lived through Vietnam, they'd say, you know, it's not as bad now as it was then. But we think it is because every age is the end of history. And, you know, I always thought ours was going to be the fairest age, but it's interesting to see how things change. What I wanted to show was my current disillusionment more for the macro than my, the micro. You know, when I was younger, it was... It was my disillusion with myself and my place. And now it's kind of a disillusionment with the world. And what I wanted to see is how can I challenge that? How can I have characters who want to affect change within that? Because it can't be on the shoulders of one man as it was within the Red Rising series, which is another reason for four perspectives. It has to take, it takes a village to affect change. And that's a theme that I'll continue to explore throughout this series. So we have a couple of questions from the audience. There's a ton of people assigned here, so just a couple. Yes, sir. Given the success of you as an author, do you think any of your first six books might have interest to God, I hope not. <laughs> um, by the way, that's my uncle right there. Everyone sing and say hi to him. Um, Can you repeat the question? Oh, oh yes. Uh, and given his current success, those six books we mentioned that were not published, will those ever be published? Will he rouse those out? So my first book was this huge fantasy epic, and some of you have probably heard this story. 780 pages. And I gave it to my mom and I said, you know, can't wait for you to read this, mom. This is what I've been doing. <laughs> and my mom says, oh, that's amazing. I can't wait to read it. And then, you know, two weeks go by and I've been like really patient. You know, I, sh I think she should have read it one day personally. She loved her son. <laughs> 
but her affection did not run that deep. And it, you know, two weeks later, I asked, hey, "Have you read it?" And she's like, "Oh, not yet." Three weeks later, I asked, "Have you read it?" Not yet. Four weeks later, I asked, "Have you read it?" And she says, "Yes, I read it." And I'm like, "Oh my God, let's talk about it." And she says, "Okay." And I'm like, "So, uh, so right off the bat, I'm like, something's a little iffy here." So I asked mom. Who's your favorite character? She's like, oh, there's so many to choose from. Probably, <laughs> probably the main one. I'm like, oh, Avrian is just such a fun character, right? She's like, he just sang off the page. I'm like, mom, Avrian is not a character in the book. <laughs> so it was of such quality that my mother had to lie to my face. So I do not think we will be seeing them in the future. All right, let's do one more. Yes, ma'am. So um, with the four perspectives now, what was like the most, who was the most challenging one that you had to write? I thought it would be Lyria. Um, mostly because I'm not and never have been a 16-year-old girl. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief. Um, no. um, but she was actually the easiest, which was surprising to me. Mostly because I felt so compassionate and respectful for who she was. Now, if it had been a different 16-year-old in that world, it might have been more difficult. But she was the easiest because she was so similar to Darrow, but so different as well. And getting to see that she was from the Gamma Clan, it was interesting to peel back that layer and write the side of the world that I've always just kind of blamed for things too because I didn't like Gamma either. And so she was pretty easy. I'd say the most difficult turned out to be Darrow. Um, probably because I didn't write more Red Rising books just to make it longer. You know, I wanted to discover new things. I wanted to make it feel same, same, but different. You know? Um, and that required me to discover Darrow again. You know, how would he change over the years? Um, would he be in a place where he has to make the sacrifices and decisions he does in this book? And I found that surprising. I actually saved him for last. I thought I would write Darrow's perspective first, and because I wrote each perspective at a time and then linked them up through the second draft. And instead, I ended up saving him for last, mostly because I couldn't figure him out at first. So, Darrow, surprisingly. We'll do one more. Yes, sir. Uh, are there any updates you can share with us on the movie? Absolutely. Oh. Are, there, are there any updates he can share on the movie? Is the so, the movie was originally optioned by Universal Studios with Mark Forster, who did World War Z, um, was set to direct. And I did the first couple drafts, and they brought in another screenwriter, as they want to do. And the project fizzled out, and I got the rights back, which is the biggest thing. And I got all the rights back. And there's no money against it in the TV world. So that means, and I think that I've always thought, as we've seen the evolution of television, we've seen that if the viewers are there, the budget is too. And I believe Red Rising with the right talent would be a better television series for a premium network. And so I've attached a director who is, wants to do the entire first season um, to maintain the continuity of vision. And he's a fantastic director. I can't say his name yet, um, but you will have heard of him. And then we're seeking out a showrunner who will, uh, he'll show run, and I'll be the head writer on it. So we're putting that package together now, so it should be really fun. Awesome. And we've got a lot of interest from some of the best streamers, uh, streaming channels, so it should be fun if we put it together. Pierce Brown, everybody. That was Scott's interview of Pierce Brown. That was, that was a lot of insight there. It's always interesting to share when you get to see people struggle to get published. Uh, as novelists, as writers, as creators, as storytellers, you often see the, the, the people up on the top of the top of the pyramid, so to speak, mm -hmm. and you're like, God, I really want to get there someday. And it's really easy to lose track uh, or to lose sight of the struggles they have to get there. And if they are successful, the struggles in dealing with success. And I know a lot of you are thinking, 
Oh, poor author, so successful. <laughs> but having been in Pierce's shoes at this point, I can tell you this book is a really big deal. Uh, Iron Gold is. Because in publishing, no matter what anyone tells you, no matter what writing class you take, whatever pie in the sky stuff is going on, what awards you win or lose, I will tell you flat out in this industry, you are judged based on the sales of your most recent book. Full stop. Unless you are an indie publisher doing your own thing, if you are with any of the bigs or any of the inter intermediate sized publishers, they are paying attention. How many books did she sell mm -hmm. last time out? Mm -hmm. So with Iron Gold, it just literally came out yesterday as we're recording this one day after the book was released. You can bet there is a lot of stress in the Brown household watching how this does. <laughs> Both for him and for his publisher, Del Rey Books, who, mm -hmm. uh, full disclosure, is also our publisher, The Generations right. Trilogy. Yep. Great folks. Because you know the publisher has invested a lot of money and promotion into the production of, of this book. Uh, and, you know, people also forget with a book this big, with a promotion budget like he's got for this book and the tour and everything else, jobs are on the line. If it doesn't perform well, somebody's going to have to answer for that. Yeah, but I kind of think it's good for storytellers to hear that even the big hitters have trouble getting their their kind of first break into things. Yeah, it's a, it's always good to hear because there's so many creators and storytellers who are just trying to get their start, working their asses off. But the main lesson, I think, from an interview like this one with Pierce is you, you do this because you have to do it. And hopefully somewhere down the road, you can share your stories with a lot of people. Well, we hope you enjoyed episode 33 of Story Smack. You can find Scott and myself online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram, and his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I am at A Real Girl on Twitter and at a.real.girl on Instagram. You can find us online at facebook.com slash Story Smack, and we'd love to see your comments over there. You can find us also on iTunes, search for Scott Sigler Audiobooks and subscribe. You'll get a free unabridged audiobook episode every Sunday. FDO, for the people who are hearing us for the first time, what is your current free audiobook? This week, we will post episode number 14 of Alone, which is book three of the Generations Trilogy, a sci-fi series that I think readers of Red Rising would dig. Mm. Book one of the Generations Trilogy was Alive, which none other than Mr. Pierce Brown himself called, quote, a ripping thunderbolt of a novel. So if you listen to this episode because you dig <laughs> Pierce's work, what more do you need to know? Well, that is it for this Story Smack. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, we hope you subscribe to Scott Singler Audiobooks, and you can hear more Story Smack goodness in the future as well. Until the next episode, we'll talk to you all real, real soon. soon. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.